If you're a pastor, elder, deacon, nonprofit board member, or business owner, I need you to listen to this. K&K Furnishings needs to be on your shortlist. K&K Furnishings are committed to helping you find the right furnishings for your church or organization. These guys specialize in quality worship seating, welcome centers, cafes, nurseries, classrooms, as well as stage and podium furnishings. The two owners have over 70 years of combined pastoral experience, so not only will every transaction be handled with integrity and professionalism, but they have the experience to provide you with the perfect solutions for your furniture needs, and they absolutely understand your budget constraints and demands. K&K Furnishings are devoted to providing you quality pieces that save you money. They can do this because they don't have the overhead of a brick and mortar store and they have relationships with over 200 manufacturers nationwide. Look, we all know there's a lot of junk out there. K&K understands that many times bargains aren't true money savers. They end up costing you more in the long run. At K&K, they believe that quality furnishings don't have to be outrageously expensive. And here's the best part. K&K Furnishings sells nationally and can also provide in-person consultations in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. If you can't meet in person, they'd be happy to set up a Zoom consultation for you today. So whatever your next project is, whether it's your home office or your church sanctuary, K&K Furnishings is the only place you need to look. Go to www.kkfurnishings.com to see how they can help you or call 567-318-4520. That's www.kkfurnishings.com or call 567-318-4520 or click on the link in the description of this episode. K&K Furnishings, furnishing business, education, worship, and hospitality for the glory of God. Hey guys, before we get into this week's episode, I got to tell you about Jacob's Supply. Jacob's Supply is the place you got to go for all of your material needs. These guys bring you construction supplies and appliances for up to 50% off retail price, all brand new. Your home builder needs some lumber? Jacob's Supply has you covered. You a deacon at your church and you're in charge of that next Narthex floor job? Jacob's Supply has got you. Heck, they got Cortec Luxury Vinyl Plank right now for $3.59 a square foot. Go look that stuff up at Lowe's or Home Depot, man. That stuff is selling for $7 to $8 a square Square foot. That's over 50% off retail. Even if you just have some home projects you're working on, Jacob Supply is the place for you. I just built an outdoor grilling area this spring for that old smoker and grill. Guess where I got the metal roof, lumber, and screws? Yeah, that's right, Jacob Supply. Looking for a fridge, stove, washer, dryer? They got them all, and their name brand. Samsung, Bosch, Frigidaire, all 20, 30, 40% off retail. Brand new and ready for you. Located in Temperance, Michigan, it's worth it to stop by even if you're a few hours away. And remember, Jacob Supply can ship products nationally too. So even if you're out of state, you gotta check them out. Follow them on Facebook at Jacob Supply or call them direct at 734-224-0978. That's 734-224-0978. 0978. Remember, Jacob Supply, quality building materials at wholesale prices. And now, on to the show. Oh, listen to that guitar. Wait for it. Wait for it. Oh, welcome okay. to another episode of Dead Men Walking. Got some a little bit different for y'all, <laughs> don't we? Yeah, if you guys been listening for a while, you're going, "What's going on with these intros?" So we had switching it up. We had we had an intro for about seven eight months. Yeah, we switched a little bit uh, for the last few months. And now we're getting into this thing where uh, Jay just brings in his guitar, yeah. rips a few licks on the mic, and I've got about fifteen of these bad boys preloaded. I mean this this is really uh, this is a fun <laughs> this is a fun time, man. I mean we're we're you know just jamming in here and trying to come up with a new intro. So we you guys, mu- you we... guys will have to let us know, email us, and let us know which one you you're digging on. Yeah, because I think we might just do a little different one each week. Yeah. Maybe we'll even have a, like a live session or something oh, as fun. we work 
through some intros, get some input from the yeah. listeners, see what they like. But that uh, that little lick there, that little was is, is it called a lick? Sure, is it called a rhythm a, riff. What is it called? A riff, you know, riff. Yeah, yeah. That was by ours truly, uh, Jason Hamlin. Yeah. There, just off the top of his head last week. <laughs> I can hardly wait to see when you put nine minutes into well, an intro instead of 45 seconds. It's going to be unbelievable. Yeah, right. Well, I do have a little bit of Jimmy Page in these fingers, so <laughs> oh, just watch it. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, wow. How you been, man? Doing, we took a week off. I know. I know, which is cool. It's, go, it's always good to take a little bit of a break. It's cool. Now, so. you guys still got your episode every week. Yeah. We had yeah. one banked. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I did have a listener reach out to me. They go, loved the consumerism episode last week week why did you say christmas was coming no really I said, well a little caveat there we recorded that you, in november that's hilarious <laughs> so you got one that was a few months old but we put one in there you know we do like the tv shows do that the host takes off for two weeks we yeah, do a little yeah. pre-record there yeah but uh we're back at it now it feels good to be back in the studio oh, yeah. with you too man Definitely. like i feel like when we go a week without I know. I'm like missing something it's in like, my life, what's, man. What's going on here? You know, I'm like, where's my bearded brother at? Yeah, yeah, right. I'm missing something. And, th- and then I cut it, and then, <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'll tell you what. We're gonna do a little introduction here, and then we're gonna get into some newsy news. But we have uh, someone on the line who has been on the podcast yep. before when we were down at the Fight Laugh Feast uh, uh-huh. conference. Was yep. it a conference, rally? What yep. was it? Oh, both. Down in Franklin, yeah, outside of Nashville. We got to set up right next to uh, a gentleman uh, that we had not met, but have come to love. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. He is a, a international author, a professor, a theologian, historian, and he's host of Theology Pugcast, yep. which is the coolest name It is for the, a podcast, if you think about it. The coolest podcast you guys will listen to. Okay. Oh, my gosh. It's, Let, better, it's much, wait. much, much better than ours. Okay. I, Let's just throw that exactly. <laughs> Much smarter people on that yeah, podcast yeah, for sure. than the dumb dad jokes yeah, on ours. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, a couple about, knuckleheads trying to, yeah. Last, last fall, I was raking leaves to one of their episodes, yeah. and you know how you just kind of passively listen to a podcast yeah. when you're doing things? Yeah. I literally had to stop raking... <laughs> Uh, rewind, you know, rewind oh, or go yeah. back 30 seconds a minute, re-listen. It happens many times. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, hold on. Go back. It's yeah. such deep <laughs> and introspective and like historical and yeah. theological. You just go, man, there's a lot of meat in those podcasts. But uh, today on the podcast, we have Mr. Glenn Sunshine. Glenn, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. <laughs> The crowd's going wild for you. Yeah, live audience. <laughs> a pre-recorded live audience. So we do a little thing here, uh, Glenn, called Newsy News. We just go over two or three uh, subjects that popped up in the news this week. Uh, feel free to join in and comment on it. Um, and after that, we are going to get into what we want to talk to you about tonight. So, Jason, do we have some news? We absolutely have some Let's news. Let's go to Newsy News. Yep. News, the news, the newsy, newsy news, the news, the news, the news, the news, the news, news. We got some news. Nice. Love that false setup. We might, we might have to put that on iTunes so uh, all of our friends out we there We will can... sell four copies of that at 99 cents. No, no, no. We'll put it for free. Let's just give that one away. Okay, okay. But uh, all right. So, What's our first news Yeah, story? check this out. A Washington man arrested for allegedly stealing 400-pound slide, mounting it to his child's bunk bed at his home. 
Now what? that sounds amazing. Uh, that is totally a dad thing. <laughs> I know, right? He's a dad, right? Does it say he's yes, a dad? Yes, he totally is. Yeah, mounted uh, to his, yeah. His... I have been tempted uh, going down the street before, and I saw an old slide in the trash, and I went, I mm. could rehab that. Right. I, I could put that on the side of the second story window, let oh, the kids man. slide out. You remember those it. those really <laughs> dangerous slides that used to be on the playground, man. Yeah. And like, imagine having one right outside of your second story window, and you just... <laughs> Well, now, see, when I was a kid, they used to make them out of 100% American-made steel. Oh, yeah. So in the summertime, they'd be 211 degrees, just one degree (laughs) below boiling. Right. So you didn't boil your legs off, but you did get third-degree burns when you (laughs) went down it, and it was not slippery at all. Right. Yeah. So he he stole it and then hooked it up to the kid's bunk bed. Hooked it up to the bunk bed. And they got him. That's a great idea, though. But how did he even get caught? Did did he put it on Instagram? Like, I I just don't understand. Oh, well, geez. Nowadays, the government can come right into your house for a slide. I mean, geez. Yeah, they can do anything they want. If you can't have more than five people at your Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner, what else do they tell you to do inside (laughs) the privacy of your own home? Exactly. Yeah. What else we got there? Yeah, yeah. That was a fun one. So this one is interesting. Okay. Um, Miss Silver State USA was awarded uh, to a transgender person. Uh, oh, I think I saw this. Cataluna Enriquez was crowned in the biggest preliminary competition for the Miss Nevada USA pageant. Um, so now we have men, men winning, winning Miss Nevada. Yes. Miss, is, is that what it is? Miss Nevada? Uh, Miss Silver. Miss Silver? State. Yes. What is going Nevada. on? Yeah, Nevada. How is this woman's empowerment, by the way, too? I, I love know. talking to third wave uh, feminists and going, you know, so I, now we're just dominating in everything. I want to know where they're at <laughs> on this, you know, like, why are they not uh, upset? You know, well, it's a, it, it is a crazy thing. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we see, you know, the depravity of man, yeah. you know, in full force there when we can say, uh, you know, eight year old kids can, uh, you know, inject hormones and do yeah. these things. And, and, and we call you know, more than two genders, which is outside of God's design. But right. what's really funny, and when I say funny, not a laughing matter, yeah, but yeah. just uh, ironical to me, is when you have these kind of liberal sects within themselves having to war against each other. Right. So now you have a man, right, yeah. winning a competition just for women. Where, where do feminists fall on this? No idea. Glenn, what's going on with this stuff? Have you ever heard of TERF? T-E-R-F. Uh-uh. Oh, I think Stands I have. Yeah. Trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Oh. And uh-huh. it turns out that within the feminist movement, you have a split between trans-exclusionary. Actually, uh, J.K. Rowling is a good example of this. Um, she nearly got canceled, but she's too popular and too rich for that to actually work. <laughs> um, but she objected to the trans stuff, and they they tried to, to cancel her. So she's sort of the poster child for the turf. Wow. But there is this split within the feminist movement between those who support trans and those who don't. Mm. So now even inside of that, there's some intersectionality yeah. of like, well, I'm with this group within that group that yeah. says yay or nay to that. It's, it's it's wild. I mean, even even hearing about a male winning a uh, weightlifting competition, well, um, a male who says he's sure. a woman sure. uh, winning a weightlifting competition. I mean, duh. I mean, you, what, what do you think is going to happen? Right. Uh, yeah. Anyone that wants to argue with me about either the depravity of man or uh, God being a God of, of wisdom uh, and, and seeking after God to attain wisdom, you only have to look at this culture. 
Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely insane that we've taken biological, scientific, it, just about anything from the stem, mm. uh, you know, the stems, and, and and just flipped it on its head and said, "There's more than one gender. Men can have, uh, men can become pregnant." Yeah. It's like we've taken the basic core of the scientific foundation and just said, "Oh no, doesn't matter." It's it's all what you think, feel, believe, and it's just insanity to me. Okay, well, why don't we finish up? What do we got yeah, on yeah. the uh, the last one there? Okay, we got uh, vaccine passports. What are they good for, and how would they work? Experts mm. discuss the possibility of showing proof of COVID-19 vaccinations in the U.S. in order to travel and potentially do other social activities. As more and more people receive the vaccine, it becomes harder to tell who is fully vaccinated and who is not. So they are talking about um, us possibly wearing a yellow what, star, a, a bracelet. Uh, are we getting a uh, what? Are, what are we going to be putting inside of our bodies to uh, you know, wow. in, in our hand? That's insane. <laughs> Glenn, does does the government have the right to uh, to to make us produce a vaccine passport to be able to travel between states? What do you think? I don't think so. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, it's a violation of federal law as it already stands. Mm. It's a violation of HIPAA protection. Mm. So so you know you're you're setting up a system where you've got contradictory laws here, which is yeah. itself a problem. Yeah. Um, and then then there's uh, the right the uh, guarantee against uh, uh, unlawful search and seizure, which I think this would fall under. There are a whole host of things that we, that are, that are wrong with it. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like this is going to catch on though. And it's funny because Mark Levin, who not a huge fan of, but I've read some of his books just to keep up on where he is. About five eight years ago, maybe six or seven years ago came out with a book called Liberty and Tyranny. He has two chapters dedicated to essentially him predicting that, uh, you know, the overbearing, tyrannical, what he called leftist uh, government types would want to do is limit travel because it's a form of limiting freedom and the pursuit of happiness under the Constitution. So he feels when you, just from a constitutional standpoint, when you limit travel, you're actually limiting the expression of freedom, which, you know, when I read that, I think six years ago when I read the book, I thought that was an interesting point. Now, now we see it coming to, Hey, show me your piece of paper or you don't get to cross this imaginary line that separates these states. Well, we're seeing, we see in two, two areas, two countries right now that are already implementing this in China, they have already developed a COVID-19 vaccination certificate uh, required for citizens in the case of cross border travel in Israel. There's the green pass, an app that connected, uh, that's connected to a database listing everyone who's received the vaccine. Mm. So, well, you expect that from communist China, right? Right. For sure. Uh, I, I would expect that from a, a country that, you know, avows himself of being the bearer of uh, freedom, personal rights, and the mm. government having negative rights that have to protect certain rights of ours. Uh, it's kind of sad that we're seeing that. Here. Right. But, you know, that actually, uh, is that all we got for news? Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, that actually brings us into the kind of right into the next subject that mm-hmm. we want to talk to Glenn about. Obviously, like we said at the top of the show, um, historian, uh, author, I mean, some of these books that he has too, which the newest book I bought from him, Slaying Leviathan. Is that is that your latest book or do you have another one coming out, Glenn, Slaying Leviathan? That's the latest. Yeah, and just a, yeah, that one's the latest. There are a few others in the work. Yeah, so for all of our listeners too, I highly recommend it. Get out there and and uh, buy. I mean, it's available anywhere that you can uh, purchase books. Pretty much, um, I think there's some digital eBooks of that floating around too as well. You have it in e form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he really covers. Yes, we do. 
I mean, he, he covers a lot of the stuff that I kind of, you know, wanted to ask him and Jason wanted to ask him. So, you know, we're in a time right now where we're seeing, we're, we're really flirting with, you know, I call it a soft tyranny. Some people go as far to say it's governmental tyranny. Maybe there's not a difference. Maybe there is. But the church is, you know, the, the, the church is seeing some of this persecution or at least not being privileged anymore, like we talked about mm-hmm. on other episodes. And I just look and, and I feel like a lot of my generation, younger than me, even some older than me, don't really put it in perspective of, of history. And the older I get, the more I really appreciate history because those that don't understand it and study it and know it are doomed to repeat it. And I said, you know, to Jason, boy, Glenn would be great to talk to about this. I mean, especially with the time that we're in. I mean, you know, as a historian, do we have a historical reference for maybe mapping out what will happen if we go down this road of government tyranny, Glenn? Well, yes, uh, there are multiple examples that we see that where governments start off seeming to be benign, or at least claiming to be benign, and that take you in all kinds of places you don't want to go. Um, inevitably, whenever you run into somebody who's proposing some kind of utopia, they're, they're totalitarian. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, any, anybody who has a utopian vision is pretty much by definition a totalitarian authoritarian because any dissent threatens the coming utopia. Any resistance to the program threatens the coming utopia. So for the good of society, you must squash all dissent. So what would you say, just going off that line of reasoning, what would you say to someone who's maybe, uh, and I don't want to put them in a box or, you know, prejudice them, but let's say they're a very progressive far left and they go, look at your founding fathers. Uh, they had a utopia that they were creating with those documents. What would you say to someone like that, that calls uh, the bill of rights and the constitution, a type of utopia? Uh, they don't know what a utopia is. <laughs> That's sort of the short answer. Right. The, 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 the founders, the founders were acutely aware of the problem of human sin. Mm. I mean, a lot of them were heavily influenced by the Puritans who went from Calvin, who got it from Augustine or Luther, for that matter. Um, the, the entire governmental system in the United States, in the Constitution, is designed as a way of trying to prevent, number one, the government taking too much power, but number two, trying to find ways to block corruption before it can do too much damage. Mm. That's what the whole idea of checks and balances is about. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah. So no, we're not dealing with the utopia. And I feel like even when you have these uh, very uh, popular quotes, like the Jefferson quote that says government is a necessary evil, maybe rightly attributed to him, maybe not. Uh, I feel like that gives you a little bit of an idea of what they were saying. Like, look at, we understand that it's a type of evil, but sometimes mm-hmm. a necessary one. Uh, and it's not a utopia, but it's the best that we can do at this time and, and for the foreseeable future. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and that's pretty much that. That pretty much summarizes it. I mean, in, in Jefferson, ultimately got that idea from Saint Augustine. Yeah, you know, So, so there's very long history, very long tradition that the U.S. Constitution came out of. And again, it's anything but utopia. So I have this. The, I have this book, and it is probably six or seven hundred pages thick. Nice big thick book, and it's uh, founding fathers quotes. Okay. And you can look everything up by subject and then what people, whatever the historical quote was on that. And when I go through that, I have to say probably 85% of those has either some mention of a creator, of God, of grace, 
of some type of religious aspect. And then, you know, I, I will get in these discussions with my more liberal leaning friends and they will say, Oh, they weren't, they weren't Christians. They might've been deists, but they weren't Christians. They weren't believers. Where does that argument come from? Because when I read Samuel Adams and, and John Adams and James Monroe and, 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 Jefferson and all these others, there's so many references to the Bible and to creator and to, you know, all the things that we hold dear as Christians. Where, where does that leftist argument come from that, oh no, they were either atheists or deists or ha- had no, you know, religious leanings whatsoever. How, how's it even become a thing that we even have to argue that? A lot of it is really the re- result of the post-enlightenment period. There's no question that the, well, there was a book called On Two Wings. I'm blanking out on the author off the top of my head. Um, but it argued, I think correctly, that the American Eagle flies on two wings. One of them is uh, Protestant Christianity, and the other is the Enlightenment. There's no question that there was an Enlightenment influence on the founders. But there's also no question that there was a heavy Christian influence on them. Even the DS bought into a lot of ideas with from Christianity because they thought of them as common sense. They were only common sense because they grew up in a Christian culture. Mm. So what happened after the Enlightenment, as you start getting this push toward increased secularism uh, in society, really in the wake of the French Revolution especially, what you end up seeing happening is people start emphasizing the Enlightenment side of things and de-emphasizing the Christian side of them. So uh, this is going to hit in a... America probably in the early 20th century is where a lot of this is really going to start coming through. Before that, you won't find people people thinking that way at all. Yeah, when when it comes to the separation of church and state, I mean, how how are we uh, looking at these subjects now? Um, uh, since we have so many things that are starting to come into play. Um, that you know do go against our Christian faith that do uh, put us you know in a situation where we have to voice our opinion about abortion, where we have to voice our opinion about you know certain subjects. I mean, uh, like where where do we stand on on that in this moment in history? Where where do you think we are in that, Glenn? Glenn, just so you know, he's trying to well, get you well, to admit me... that uh, he that you are post mill along with him. That that <laughs> yeah, whole question yeah, yeah, was, was just about eschatology. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about eschatology. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. That's a very good question, Jason. First of all, the answer, let, let's deal with the thing. You don't have the right to bring your religious faith in. You don't have the right to impose your religion. Uh, there's a separation of church and state. You, you can't bring your religion into the public square. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let me ask this question then. If I am not allowed to advocate for my values, why are you allowed to advocate for yours? Mm. Mm-hmm. Because if in fact, if in fact we're talking about no, you know, no special privilege given to religion, but also given the way the First Amendment is written, you can't deprive people, religious people, of their rights either. Mm-hmm. Why is it that only secular people get the right to advocate for their viewpoint? Religious right. people cannot. Right. That's nonsense. Right. Well, because non religion by any standard. Yeah, non religion is a viewpoint. Is a is a religion in itself. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So I think that just by the terms of their question, they're basically saying freedom of religion means we can do and advocate and fight for whatever we want, and you have to shut up. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And you know, I think that's why this goes back to uh, making sure we uh, are supporting and and raising up 
uh, godly leaders that actually speak that way, right. that speak with boldness and speak with conviction and obviously speak biblically right. about these issues. Because I see as the culture progresses, it's going to get harder and harder to do that as the culture accepts. I mean, you're only one generation away from from major culture shifts. We've yeah. seen this over the last uh, 30, 40 years and even longer than that. Um, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, like, Glenn, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you this. What, what do you think America's or or the world's golden calf is right now. Where do you think we're at with the golden calf? You know that that's a really interesting question. I would say that's actually a hard one to answer. I don't really yeah. have a, yeah. a good way of looking at it right now. We're very fragmented. Mm. Um, the, the the problem that we've got right now is that we have a whole bunch of um, of sub, what I would describe as sub worldviews. They're mm. not complete worldviews. They're just partial worldviews, mm-hmm. um, and these are all. The glue that holds all of them together is critical theory. Yeah. Okay. And, and so all of them are built around this idea that you've got oppressors and you've got people who are oppressed and the oppressed are virtuous and the oppressors are evil. And you can mix and match categories. So you can be an oppressor in one and oppressed in the other. Mm-hmm. And this, this whole matrix of things that we're dealing with here is increasingly what's dominating the culture. But what that means is that each of these little special interest groups have their own little idol. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for the LGBTQ plus crowd, it's things related to sex. Mm. For the radical greens, it's, well, the environment. Yeah. Uh, for the critical race theorists, it's racial animosity mm-hmm. um, and, and so on. There are a number of others as well. But but again, the glue that holds them all together is the notion of how the, the society is structured uh, coming out of uh, this uh, academic field, uh, academic theory known as simply critical theory. It's been around for decades, but now it's really coming home to roost here. So right. trying to identify a single golden calf in midst of all this is pretty difficult. Right. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I was thinking about that this week whenever uh, all of us, well, not all of us, uh, most people got their stimulus check, um, you know, and you'd read online about how people are like, it wasn't enough. You know, I'm not getting enough. I can't do anything with this. It's like, this is free money. You know, and not not free. First, well, it's not free. Sorry, sorry, You're sorry. Talking to an elected I know, official I know, who's I know. a constitutional it's, conservative. It's, true. <laughs> it's not it's free. True. But you know what I'm Gosh. saying? This they're 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 throwing this money at us, and you know to to. Uh, you know, of course, sure. we have we have many categories here. Some people are angry, but rightly so, because um, this goes on the backs of our kids and grandkids and great grandkids, more than likely. Mm. Um, uh, but but I mean, you know, will will we ever get to the point once again where um, uh, you know, in in slaying Leviathan, you brought up the uh, the the Franciscos. You know, I thought that that was a really interesting group of people. Um, the people that were only being paid, they like they would only get, you're going to have to help me with this one, but they would, they would be beggars that um, would not receive money, but they would receive whatever they needed for that day. Maybe they were hungry, so they would only receive the food, you know, or, or whatever it is. But uh, do you think we'll ever get back to that point where monetary things won't mean so much to our society to where it's just like we're more minimalist where we're not you know sitting around hoping for that next big thing in our life the bigger house the bigger car you know and and i know that's probably a far stretch to bring up the franciscos but uh but i that that's kind of my golden calf in my brain i think Mm. if uh if i could say 
Yeah, the the materialist thing, the more is uh, having more, getting more uh, acquisition and things like that, I think is big. I have a suspicion that that is not going to last. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that I am anticipating that there is a fair likelihood of a serious economic collapse in the U.S. in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Mm. 100-year cycle. The the reason, yeah, well, yeah, and... You know, I'm actually looking at this like from the perspective of a complete shift in the global economy away from the U.S. Mm. And the reason for that, historically, great powers are always sunk by debt. Mm. Yeah. If we were to try to pay off the debt right now at a rate of one dollar a second, it would take over seven hundred thousand years. Wow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> this is just simply unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's absolutely insane. Uh, I want to shift gears here a little bit because uh, a little earlier you mentioned critical uh, theory. And and I think uh, that was something I wa- uh, we wanted to talk to you about as well. Like even critical race theory, which has been around since I think the late 70s, correct me if I'm wrong, mid late 70s, uh, but is now just kind of really gaining traction in the last few years. If I'm a listener right now and I've said, yeah, I've heard critical race theory. I've heard the acronym, you know, CRT. I hear people kind of talking about it, but I'm kind of on the outskirts of it. I'm not a a professor or a theologian, or I don't have a degree, but I want to know what it is. What's a good way to explain that to our listeners without getting, you know, too professory, is that a word, but also, you know, explaining it correctly. What's the definition of that and how that came about? Okay. um, First of all, there are different critical race theories, a pretty broad area. Uh, It started off in legal studies. Uh, A professor at Harvard Law uh, argued that U.S. law is intrinsically, you know, it's baked into it that it's racist. It's really about maintaining white supremacy, the entire U.S. law code. That's how it begins with that idea. From there, uh, we get a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw, who is going to introduce the idea of intersectionality. That is to say, you know, I talked about this matrix of oppressor-oppressed classes. The more oppressed classes you are in, the more moral authority that you have to speak. Okay, If you aren't in the oppressed classes, you don't really have much of a right to speak. Mm. So those are sort of the roots, the two key roots. Where it emerges in Black Lives Matter in particular, uh, the way this gets popularized, moving it out of the academy, moving it out of law school, the way this this really hits is um, through, well, if you read the original manifesto of Black Lives Matter, what you will find it is a smattering of all kinds of different causes, many of which have nothing to do with race. Mm. So um, anyone who is in an oppressed class is good. So we want to support LGBT because, well, we're in a heteronormative society, and that means that heterosexuals don't have moral authority, but the oppressed LGBTQ plus people do. We want to support, um, we want to get away from patriarchy. So it talked about mothers and children um, and the idea that we need to have a community to raise the, the children to the degree that the mothers and children are comfortable with it, completely omitting the father. Hmm. There's got to be a universal right to abortion, all of these kinds of things. So what critical race theory, which starts 
in the law school morphs into something that ends up being a sort of an umbrella for all kinds of leftist organizations, all kinds of left kinds of leftist causes, and so on. Um, they even did a Black Trans Lives Matter rally in Washington. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, in New York. So it, it ends up being this this umbrella of all of these different kinds of progressive causes. But the fundamental point that stands behind it right now is that America is a fundamentally racist society that it is baked into the system. Uh, it's not clear whether they even believe it can be the system can be reformed. Some do, some don't. Some think you have to tear the whole thing down and start over again. Uh-huh. Um, but it basically says that everything that happens, it fundamentally really revolves around race. And uh, if someone is a person of color and they perceive something as racist, it is racist, whether or not you intend it to be or not. It, it doesn't matter. They get the right to decide. And whites have to sit down and shut up because they don't have any kind of moral authority on the issue. How does something like that infiltrate the church? Because I know there's popular national children's curriculum out there that many evangelical churches are using, and suggested suggested reading is critical race theory, white fragility, uh, you know, all these things where they just take this social movement and then they put some words on it, and then they put it underneath the heading of like a social gospel, which all three of us here know you know, that's ridiculous. But how does that infiltrate? And now we have Christians that, you know, so-called Christians that are, that are essentially espousing and teaching and saying, you must learn about this critical race theory. And the four or five things you just mentioned about it, not one of them seem biblical. How did we get to a point where we have many churches accepting this? And I would also say is a theory, yeah. not a principle. It's a theory, right? Yeah. <laughs> So is it even true? (laughs) Right. Yeah, this is, I'm about to say some very unpleasant things about American evangelicalism. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) No, please do. um, Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. We're all thinking it. I'm a historian. (laughs) I'm I'm a historian. So let's look at this over time. Mm. Evangelicalism and fundamentalism were originally the same thing. They only split in the 1950s because of Billy Graham. I'm not going to get into the details there. Evangelicalism gradually became more and more, because they were more willing to interact with the culture, unlike the, the fundamentalists, they started having a certain degree of influence. Then a self-described evangelical by the name of Jimmy Carter got elected president in 1976. Time magazine declared it the year of the evangelical. We have uh, Jerry Falwell in the moral majority hitting the, the big time. So suddenly evangelicalism became popular. Mm. It became, well, it's not popular, at least it became visible and influential and recognized. Mm. And there were a lot of people who, who had positive feelings about it in various sorts of ways. But from there, what ended up happening is in order to appeal to great more and more people, they began to adopt more and more elements of the culture to the point where today in many evangelical churches, what you have in place of worship, put that in scare quotes, is a concert followed by a TED Talk. Mm. And yeah. the TED Talk, and it is a TED Talk. It yeah. is not biblical exegesis. Right. It's uh, how, how to feel good about yourself, self-help kinds of things. Mm. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's that's where it's ended up in a lot of places. Um, you have new churches being built that don't look like churches. They look like entertainment venues, concert halls. Right. Uh, yeah. What does the architecture communicate? The architecture should say something to people. And when people go in and see that, they immediately think entertainment. They immediately think concert. 
they don't think worship. So we're doing all of these things to accommodate to the culture. And at a point where the evangelical fad kind of starts dying out, they begin to accommodate to more and more things in the culture, not just putting in a Starbucks coffee bar or a, you know, the the concert and TED Talk thing. They begin adopting ideas from the culture because by so doing, they hope that they're going to hold on to this popularity that they've had. Mm. Yeah. And then, they're, and then going, along, they're going to then have to along, keep up with it as well. Right. Yep. Which means that you follow the fad. Right. That's becoming relevant. There's nothing less relevant than a church that thinks it's relevant <laughs> or that tries to be relevant. Yeah. And we've okay, said it's it just as simple as that. We've said it quite um, a few times. Yeah. There, there's one more thing in this, however, that does need to be said. And that's that although I will be the first person to argue that racism is a heck of a lot less of a problem today than it was when I was a kid. Mm. Things are much better. That doesn't mean that racial problems have gone away. Yeah. And Christians do need to be aware of this. We do need to be concerned about it. And we do need to be fighting for true justice. Right. So when you have when you have that, when you have it combined with, with frankly, manipulative stuff from the media telling you how awful this problem is, how serious it is, when you're getting bombarded with these messages, it is actually appealing to something that is genuinely important and genuinely significant for Christians because we should be fighting for justice. Right. Mm. But because we've lost the biblical foundation for what justice is, because we've forgotten the fact that the church has the resources to deal with the problem of racism, we think that critical theory is the only game in town. So it's a combination of two different things that are going on here. Wow. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, I feel like sometimes this was birthed out of even the social justice movement. And I would ask you, Glenn, uh, is, because I've had, I mean, believing Christians who seem sincere, I've known for a long time, uh, you know, they're, they're not political, but they just go, no, Christ taught so, social justice. Right. He said, feed the poor and clothe them and, and do all these things and turn the other cheek. He taught social justice. And then they, you know, point you right towards some leftist, leftist organization that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel, but is helping possibly air quotes again, helping the poor, the downtrodden or, or urban or, or underprivileged or whatever you want to name them. Is social justice what Christ taught? No, because among the other things, well, for example, Jesus said, feed the poor. He didn't say subcontract that out to the government. Mm-hmm. Amen. Okay. So, so let's, let's, let's just be clear here, because it turns out, well, let, let, let's, let's do some numbers here. Private charitable organizations, as of the last time I looked at the number, 70% of the money that is given to them goes to feed the poor or to whatever their particular cause is. They've got 30% overhead. The last time I checked the government, it was 30 cents went to feed the poor and 70 cents went to government overhead. It is probably it is probably worse now because all of this was before the expansion of government in the Obama administration and and since. So in all likelihood, it's probably down to more like 25 cents to a dollar. So just in terms just in terms of financial responsibility, private charity is a much, much better way of dealing with issues of poverty. Let's take another part of it. The government out of out of Washington can only do one size fits none policy. The more effective way of dealing with with poverty is to have people on the ground who know the individuals who are involved, who know the communities and those kinds of things, and have them doing 
deciding how to administer the funds, how to work with them, and so on, because they have local knowledge. And this is this needs to be solved at a local level. This is uh, this is something that the Catholics call subsidiarity, and the Catholics are absolutely correct. Subsidiarity is the best way of dealing with these problems. Um, so the problem with social justice is it tends to be really heavy on social and not so big on justice. It tends to be very heavy on government, uh, and it tends to be very heavy on looking like you're doing the right things rather than actually doing them. Yeah, and and I've said this before on the podcast, and I know, Jason, we talked about it, was, you know, I've kind of blamed the church by and large is is kind of getting us into this predicament. We kind of tech, took two steps back and allowed the government to take the role of the church. I mean, you just go 80 years ago and you had Catholic churches that would feed, clothe, train, and put to work people for weeks at a time, get them back on their feet, put them in a job program, a social program, and you know, and, and even uh, Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches. And now we've just kind of stepped back and allowed the government to take the place of our charity. And, you know, we have a bill in the uh, Congress rolling around right now that wants to make all churches uh, taxable. And I think about six months ago, we said on the podcast, I said, you know, the Stephen Furtick's and the Kenneth Copeland's and the Creflo dollars, they're going to ruin it for everyone. When you bring in $300 million and only 1% of that is actually going to charity, 2% of it going to the community, the government's going to want their taste. They're going to want to wet their beak. Hey, where's our revenue from that business you're running? Because clearly you're not running a nonprofit, a charity, or a church. So now we've gotten to this predicament too, to where some bad actors within the church uh, have not only uh, you know abdicated their responsibility over the decades, but now have gone the opposite direction and under the guise of an, uh, of not being uh, you know not being taxable, have basically been running businesses for right. for decades. And and now we have twofold coming at us as one like Glenn just said, we have the social uh, gospel being able to seep its way into the core and kind of the DNA of the church because we wanted that kind of popularity and kind of that mainstream relevance to be mm. in the mainstream and be at the you know maintain that and then on top of that we're we're running businesses as churches right. and it's just uh, absolutely bizarre to me that it only has taken jeez i mean even in my lifetime and i'm 39 so even just uh from the time that i can remember going to churches and seeing what was on the news i feel like the culture has shifted so much in just 30 short years glenn i'm sure it has shifted you know you're slightly older than us so i'm sure you've seen things that we haven't and seen where it shifted and, and the things that you went through and it just it just amazes me if you just get off one degree, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, you are so far apart on, on issues and things like that. But um, Glenn, as we finish up here and put some bookends on this, um, can you, for our listeners, just kind of uh, give us an overview of of your book, Slaying Leviathan? Um, let us know. I, I feel like it probably covers some of the things we talked about tonight, but give us an overview of that and then let people know where uh, they can reach out to you on social media. Okay. Well, I'm going to start at the end of Slaying Leviathan because hopefully everybody who's listening is at least familiar a bit with John Locke. Locke's the guy who came up with some of the key ideas um, behind the Declaration of Independence that Jefferson is then going to adapt a bit. Every one of Locke's core ideas really dates back to earlier Christian theologians. You know, his idea of unalienable rights, every one of his unalienable rights, life, liberty, and property, 
go back to medieval theologians. The idea of government as covenant goes back through Calvin, actually, to Exodus, where God asked the people three times, do you accept the terms of this covenant? And they agreed three times before the covenant was ratified. So this government, this idea of government by consent of the governed, uh, done by form of covenant, that that's biblical, and it comes to Locke through Calvin. Uh, the idea of resistance to tyranny, the resistance to a government that oversteps its legitimate bounds, that violates the covenant, comes through the Protestant tradition, starting with Luther, going through the Huguenots into the Puritans to, Cal- to Locke. Locke's genius was he took all of these things and several other things that were sort of in separate categories, and he synthesized them. He put them together into a coherent system. And then Jefferson picked up on this, developed it a little bit further. It has a heavy influence on the Constitution and so on. In a lot of ways, the Declaration, the founding documents of America, the Declaration and the Constitution, are really the culmination of a long process of Christian political theology, Mm. all of which is built around, the reason why the book is called Slaying Leviathan is Leviathan was a book by Thomas Hobbes, roughly the same time as Locke, that argued for absolutist government, that argued that what the king said was law and that was it. Nobody could question the king, nobody could challenge him, nobody could do anything. The king had, had complete authority. That totalitarian vision of government was the world in which Jesus lived. It's the world in which the early church developed. And over the years, what Christianity does is it says the government does have certain legitimate rights, but they're limited. They are limited because Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, give to God the things that are God. So Caesar has some things, but those are the things that God has given to Caesar to have. So the question is, where are those limitations? How do we, what do we do with them? This is the reason why Christian political theology developed. And ultimately, it is really built around slaying Leviathan. It is built around limiting the power of government, limiting totalitarianism, and keeping government in its proper place. Now, this whole process, like I said, really, in a lot of ways, I think it reaches its ultimate expression, slightly secularized in the American founding. Right after that, we have the French Revolution. And when the French Revolution happens, it's a purely secular revolution. And like all secular revolutions, it ate its own. It slaughtered many of its own people, uh, its own leaders, and so on. But the French Revolution then in the increasingly secular world of the 19th century becomes the foundation for political thought ever since. Right. So in a very broad base, uh, what I do is I trace out all of these different ideas and how they coalesce and come together with Locke. So that's the that would be the short version of it. Yeah. As far as social media goes, I am you can I'm easily found on Facebook. That's the best place to find me. I don't have a lot of other social media presence. I'm trying to get into some of the new platforms, but I'm not yet in the habit of being there that much. So Facebook <laughs> is probably your best bet. Yeah. That's okay. We found you, Glenn. We yeah. we hunted you down and, and messaged you. You have some awesome posts on Facebook, by the way. I, oh, I know, I love right? Following Glenn, yeah, for sure. Yeah, get so it's Glenn Glenn Sunshine, G L E N N Sunshine, just like it sounds. <laughs> yeah. uh, slaying Leviathan, and and just really quick, do you believe? Uh, you know, if if I have someone come to me and say uh, you believe in limited government. Is that biblical? Do we have certain verses that we can look at and say limited government is a biblical principle? Or do we have certain contexts where we can say, well, the idea of limited government is seen biblically? Or do we just throw it out altogether and just say, well, it just seems biblical, but we don't even have any proof text for it. That's what we seem seem to think works best. Like, what's your thoughts on that? I would always start with Jesus. It's always a good idea. Yeah. And again, his statement, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. It's clear 
that Caesar isn't over everything. Right. Mm. Um, you, you can look at the earliest Christian confession, Jesus is the Lord. What that meant is Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Mm-hmm. Mm, because absolutely. Caesar claimed authority over all of life. Right. Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the case. You don't have authority over everything. And the Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, says that Jesus is the only one who has authority over everything, which, by the way, also includes government. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Jason, you got anything else for Glenn as we wrap oh, it up man. here? Thank you so much for coming on, Glenn. We really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, love, love your your uh, your history mind, man. That's so great. I love it, man. Absolutely. So two quick things. So if, if someone out there is going, why should I care about history as a historian? What's your paragraph answer to them? Why history is important? Um, well, two different answers. One of them is that if you want to understand what's happening now and where it's going, you have to know where it came from, uh-huh. because that's the only way you can see a trajectory. If you only look at what's happening now, you don't get the trajectory. And if you don't see the trajectory, you don't know where it's going. Yeah. Mm. The second reason is for Christians. The Bible is a very complicated book. Uh It doesn't give us straightforward answers to any of the questions we really want to ask. And as a result, it has to be studied and examined very carefully. People have to think long and hard on it to work out, for example, you know, we had 1,700 years of pondering what the implications of the Bible are for government before we got the Declaration of Independence. Mm. So why do you not, why are you not interested in history when we have this incredible set of resources of godly men through the centuries who have pondered it long and hard, very, very bright people, very, very godly people, who pondered it long and hard, who thought about it, and who have teased out of it what it means and what its implications are. Do you really want to go back and reinvent the wheel in the face of that? Are you really (laughs) that brilliant? (laughs) No. No, I'm a big believer in uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. And with that, Glenn, we thank you so much. Guys, listen, we're going to put the link to the book – on the podcast uh, where you listen. Uh, it'll be on our YouTube channel. It'll be on Facebook and Instagram and all the places that we are. We really love our brother, Glenn. He always brings such value yeah. when uh, we talk to him. We enjoy your books as well, too, Glenn. And guys, I would advise you to check him out and check out the many books that he's authored because I have quite a few. Uh, bought a few when we were down at Fight, Laugh, Feast. Read through yep. those. Absolutely edifying and just uh, unbelievable. Whether you're a history person or not, the way you relate subjects Subjects uh, through history is just amazing. You touch on, uh, you know, very current things, uh, things in the past. So, I mean, it's just a good read all around. But guys, we also appreciate all the new comments and reviews and the website hits and all that stuff where you guys reach out to us, tell us what you're thinking, you know, even comments on the show. I know Jay and I talk about that. We'll have someone reach out to us and say, hey, what about this subject? Or what do you think about doing that different? And we like it. I mean, we like constructive criticism, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, he's got something in his throat. You good over there? My allergies, man. My allergies are going crazy today. We start talking about constructive criticism. He starts dying on us. Jeez, man. (laughs) But Glenn, thank you so much for being here. And uh, guys, we appreciate you listening. As always, God bless. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dead Men Walking Podcast for full video podcast episodes and clips or email us at deadmenwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. None of your biscuits.
Be sure to check us out at dmwpodcast.com where you can purchase the best and snarkiest merch on the internet, support the show, and leave us a review or message. Dead Men Walking can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Dead Men Walking Podcast and on Twitter X at Real DMW Podcast. The Dead Men Walking Podcast is part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. For exclusive show content, be sure to download the Pub TV app and become a member. If you're a business that needs to reach hundreds of thousands of potential customers in your demographic, podcast advertising might be for you. Send all inquiries to Dead Men Walking Podcast at gmail.com. None of your biscuits.